0: We're really sassy today, holy shit. Yeah, i have be drinking <laughs> Marx is getting to us, Marx is getting to us. Look at
1: the source material, soon, soon I'm going to be dunking on Anne Frank on Twitter.
2: Yeah. Oh god, no.
3: <laughs>
4: Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of Karl Marx's 18th premiere of Louis Napoleon Reading Group Series. Today is Saturday the 18th of July 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. Today we conclude Chapter 3, The Defeat of the Petty Bourgeois Democracy. This week I have the new Patrons Seth England, Arcady, Michael O'Donnell and Conspicuous User to thank. If you liked today's episode and want to hear more of this type of thing, perhaps you could consider becoming a Patron. For only $5 a month, you get two patron-only episodes every month, the regular episodes a few days early, and the right to vote on the next greeting group series. I'm also excited to let you know that I'm launching a fortnightly patrons-only livestream every Sunday at 1pm EST or 6pm London time, where patrons can ask me anything they like and I get to riff on the latest current events and no doubt get carried away in dialectical ecstasy. I'll be putting these up on the YouTube channel later in the week for all and sundry if they are of even the lowest level of quality. Okay, let's jump back into the discussion. Last week, we kind of got into, we were doing chapter three, which is the fall, uh, the defeat of the petty bourgeois democracy. And we had just gotten into a long kind of a piece where he started talking about how the Montaigne made a mess of everything. And I think, Kyle, you were reading. So let's jump back into where we we picked off. He's really going to go hard on the petty bourgeois uh, <laughs> democratic socialists or whatever we want to call them here. It's
2: not pretty. Let's have a go. All right. No party exaggerates its means more than the democratic. None deludes itself more light-mindedly over the situation. Since a section of the army had voted for it, the Montaigne was now convinced that the army would revolt for it. And on what occasion? On an occasion which, from the standpoint of the troops, had no other meaning than that the revolutionists took the side of the Roman soldiers against the French soldiers. On the other hand, The recollections of June 1848 were still too fresh to allow of anything but a profound aversion on the part of the proletariat towards the National Guard, and a thoroughgoing mistrust of the democratic chiefs on the part of the chiefs of the secret societies. To iron out these differences, it was necessary for great common interests to be at stake. The violation of an abstract paragraph of the Constitution could not provide these interests. Had not the Constitution been repeatedly violated, according to the assurances of the Democrats themselves? Had not the most popular journals branded it as counter-revolutionary botch work? But the Democrat, because he represents the petty bourgeoisie, that is, a transition class in which the interests of two classes are simultaneously mutually blunted, imagines himself elevated above class antagonism generally. The Democrats concede that a privileged class confronts them, but they, along with all the rest of the nation, form the people. What they represent is the people's rights. What interests them is the people's interests. Accordingly, when a struggle is impending, they do not need to examine the interests and positions of the different classes. They do not need to weigh their own resources too critically. They have merely to give the signal, and the people, with all its inexhaustible resources, will fall upon the oppressors. Now, if in the performance their interests prove to be uninteresting and their potency impotence, then either the fault lies with pernicious sophists who split the indivisible people into different hostile camps, or the army was too brutalized and blinded to comprehend that the pure aims of democracy are the best thing for it, or the whole thing has been wrecked by a detail in its execution, or else an unforeseen accident has this time spoiled the game. In any case, the Democrat comes out of the most disgraceful defeat just as immaculate as he was innocent when he went into it, with the newly won conviction that he is bound to win, Not that he himself and his party have to give up the old standpoint, but on the contrary, that conditions have to ripen to suit him. Fucking Russians. What do you mean by that? Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like, when your party loses, right, the the last thing you want to do is reevaluate your strategy, right? Because you know the strategy's good. It's fine. What must have happened is some kind of wrecking, some kind of tampering with your perfect formula. You understand? Okay, Apparently yeah. this is uh, a petty bourgeois democrat sort of reflex as old as time, or at least as old as this mode of production.
0: Well, there's, there's was, also the line of uh, of you gotta wait for the conditions to ripen. Hearing Tanky yeah. talk about that is always super hilarious. And also, someone who's worked for the petty bourgeois several times, let me tell you, this is hella true. They, they are delusional. Back on the horse.
3: Mm-hmm. Like this together with his very acute observations about social democracy that read as true today as back then, like I couldn't help myself, but read these two in the same light and just reading this as like when he says the Democrat picturing an actual like (laughs) Joe Biden Democrat made it so much funnier because (laughs) even, (laughs) even though it's, it's a long time before it, it still holds very true. But I, I couldn't help thinking that, like, are, are we guilty of this as well? Because talking to other Marxists in these weird cults that, that we, in one way or the other, relate to somehow, I mean, talk to any Marxist, and most of them will say, well, revolution is inevitable. Like, the, the revolution will come, and things will happen. And if you're a Marxist humanist, you think that there will be some kind of spontaneous uprising or whatever. If you're a tanky, you you think it's a vanguard party that will solve everything. But like th- this caricature of of the Democrat who's like ever the optimist and any evidence to the contrary, like any evidence of crippling defeat is taken as, you know, well, the conditions must be, well, we were too early, you know, or whatnot. So I, I couldn't help thinking that man, are we guilty of this too, Like, It's not, uh, <laughs> we're not doing anything wrong. It's, it's just, you know, the global capitalism like late stage capitalism and whatever. It's just, it's just too um, too difficult a time to be, uh, to do anything worthwhile.
2: Well, I, I will say in our defense, we did do the revolutionary strategy series, which was the longest goddamn podcast series ever made. Trying to not do what this paragraph says. Yeah, that's
4: what the whole Emancipation Network podcast kind of is. About. Yeah, but you're like five people. I know, but this yeah. is how things. This is how, this <laughs>
3: right.
2: I know, but that's you right. did use the term "us," so yeah. i am just, yeah. I've just, just, just tried to to. I to meant give a little bit. I of a meant the
3: larger, of, the, the larger collective, Kyle. The historical tendency, sure, sure, the ghosts yeah. of revolutions past. <laughs>
1: I think we could also see this, especially in the United States, from where I'm sitting right here in the beginning of May, for some reason, the people that have told us to throw in on the Sanders campaign twice still have sway on the left, and we're supposed to still listen to them for strategic advice.
3: Are you referring to Michael Brooks, maybe?
1: (laughs) I'm referring to a whole stable of sort of associated intellectuals around
4: Jacobin. Let's, you know, say that. That they're, if, they're new. They're new dealers. They're just simple new dealers. That's all they are.
1: If they were new dealers that learned from their mistakes, that would be one thing. And yeah, you know what? It was really plausible that, Oh man, the democratic establishment is so sclerotic. You know, let's, uh let's really double down on this Bernie shit again. You could even point this at Bernie himself, you know? Now, obviously it's a little different because, we're talking like we could think really hard about the power structures within the Democratic Party that made this not happen. But then there is this kind of metaphysical notion that the people, a sort of Rousseauian, you know, not a universal will, but the general will of a nation, the popular will. its It's going to burst through at some point, you
4: guys. We just got to keep doing the same goddamn thing. In case people are knock that up on the the actual history stuff. I know people probably dip in and out of these things when they're listening. But like, so the the, the idea here was that just to kind of bridge the gap from last week was that Napoleon sent a whole lot of troops down into Italy to kick the crap out of the Roman Republic against the wishes of Parliament. And the Social Democrats said, well, you can't do that, it's illegal. And they kind of basically said, well, what are you going to do about it? And he said, "If you don't do that, we'll go out in the streets." And they went out. The petty bourgeois, social democrats, and they marched with their national front national guard. These are the same national guard who let the ma- let the massacre by the army happen to the proles only like one year ago. So all the all the general people, the proles everywhere, were like, "Screw these guys!" And the national guard didn't even have any guns. So uh, when they went out, basically nothing happened, and it was a. Total damn squib, and they fell on their ass.
2: Uh, Importantly, they had guns. They chose not to bring them.
4: Oh, they still had them at this stage. They did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and
2: and, and that was basically the end of the the petty bourgeois National Guard because they had the guns, they went out, they got their asses kicked, and then that was the end of it. Always bring your guns. So
4: there's something in here that I want to ask people about here. But the Democrats, because he represents the petty bourgeoisie, that is a transition class in which the interests of two classes are simultaneously mutually blunted, imagines himself elevated above class antagonism generally. Now, is this our professional managerial class in today's world? And if so, is Marx wrong to call it a transition class? Because I think Marx had the idea that the petty bourgeois would be more and more essentially driven down. And into the into the proletariat, but like with this destruction of the petty bourgeoisie, we also kind of have a concomitant rise of a managerial class. So, is this a problem with Marxist class analysis?
2: I, I I think we've got to leave that to the next series we're doing because we're going to get so deep into that question there. Yes. And you know, I, I I think that looking on my own experience. This was definitely my ideology growing up. I grew up with the CBC, CBC Radio, which is petty bourgeois consciousness, uh, just you know, par excellence. Be like NPR in the United States. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's a little different, but yes,
1: yes. More culturally uh, important, more like the BBC or something. Situate it for me You're from an alien planet.
2: Okay it's very much inspired by say the liberalism of like Lester B Pearson which i guess you could say is it's it's a little bit more left you might say than the than NPR it's it's really like tied up with the Canadian state as a mediator for all classes and a common national project of bringing together the nation and bringing together the classes. And also very heavily sort of like influenced by like, kind of like left-wing Protestantism, which I, which is the same as NPRA, I guess you could say there. Yeah. But I don't know. It's got, it's got something that's a little bit more tory, a little bit more a little bit more british than nbr, I guess you might say. Anyway, that's what I grew up with, totally believed this stuff. I remember actually after one election when I was a kid, my mom was talking to me and she was like, "Well, what did you think about the election results?" and I was like, "Well, I think everybody won in their own way." And and and, Aww. and uh, <laughs> And that was the message the CBC radio was sending me. <laughs> okay, so this is exactly what Marx is talking about here. So I think it is absolutely something you see in the PMC. It is also something you just see in the petty bourgeoisie. Like I, I have a friend who's actually has been on uh, been on General Intellect. You, Bob Newbauer. Part of his family comes from sort of like old stock Canadians, upper Canadians, you know, real WASPy kind of types who are, some of them are bourgeois, some of them are petty bourgeois, and they also completely have this ideology. So I, I think you can still find this ideology of the petty bourgeoisie, even if it isn't uh, exclusive to them.
3: I would say from a, from a Scandinavian perspective, or actually I can't speak for the rest of Scandinavia, but, but Sweden specifically, this is a scathing and very accurate description of uh, basically our entire political history. And the the ideology to you, uh, I think even the left subscribes to. So you know, we we've had the social democratic party in in power for most of our history, and it was founded and the, like the ideology is exactly this. You know, we can bridge all class antagonisms by tweaking a little bit of this in capitalism and uh doing a little bit of that and making sure that the unions and the employer associations are friendly and the negotiations go well and if we just manage this enough everyone can calm down and we can have a cup of coffee and we can discuss our differences and you know uh, in a civil manner and everything will be fine so I, I, I totally relate to that. Uh, the, the more I listen to you, Kyle, the, the more I feel like, you know, Canada is very similar, <laughs> like ideologically and yeah. culturally.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, in many, many ways.
1: I was going to slightly pivot based on this idea of petty bourgeois class interests not being really, maybe I'm calling back. It's not so much about Marx's predictions about proletarianization and the petty bourgeois, more about how the proletariat like the bourgeoisie has a universalizable class interest that you can form an economic order around you know and therefore that potential is prefigured by the you know supposed potential ability for there to be a coherent party based on their interests right the petty bourgeois is too fractious and disparate it doesn't have enough actual common interest at heart, or if it does, it's too throat cutting, competitive within Mm. itself to be capable of generalizing in such a way where you get political institutions that can actually be said to be on a petty bourgeois basis. Some accounts of the Soviet Union look at it that way and that, you know, the Soviet Union, because it was based on essentially a managerial class interest it wasn't sustainable until it collapsed into one or the other camp of the bourgeoisie or the proletariat.
3: Yeah, I mean Marx comments on that in the paragraph above, I think or, or a few paragraphs above where he describes the petty bourgeoisie as like uh the the, the reason that the, the that social democracy represented the petty bourgeoisie is not because mm-hmm. the uh, the petty bourgeoisie has any like material class interests the way The aristocracy has or the way that the real like capital B bourgeoisie has a material class interest but simply because they can't imagine a a, a different society right (laughs) they they may uh, you know identify or, or sympathize more with workers or or whatever but they're still stuck in democratic republican everyday way of life that they have no no way of thinking outside thinking outside the box and that is why they are like the petty bourgeoisie, it's not because of uh, any sort of weird materialist thing, but yeah. that has the result of like materially supporting the bourgeois order uh, etc but like, right
1: because they spread their weakness to the proletariat through this social democratic exactly, cla- yeah. class compromise program
3: uh, That's it's just such a great great criticism of, of social democracy like I, I can't believe this is this is this old because like we have editorials, almost every week calling out the social democratic party on this exact point. (laughs) And we've had that for like the past four years since the last election and like reading the exact same thing with Marx is just like this guy, man, he knew what was going on.
4: I have a question for you all. Like, uh, I presume we've all gone to college. Yeah.
3: Yes.
2: Okay. Times.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Some of us never left indeed, but th- this describes my class of friends, essentially. I think of all the people I went to college with, I don't know how many I know that have similar politics to me that were that like that I came up with. And, you know, cause I'm new to Marx and all that. I didn't like go to college and I wasn't like a lefty in college or anything like this. I was just a piss artist, you know? So it's like, it's kind of staggering to me. Like, cause when I meet my friends now, and they go home and it's like, how's it going? Blah, blah, and we talk about a few things. And like, I do feel like, Oh my God, these petty bourgeois <laughs> Do you get that at all with people? You like your friends from college or stuff like that. It's <sighs> a personal life
0: thing. So my first graduate program, I'm in the process of trying to get into a different one. My first graduate program was social justice and human rights. And let me tell you, this program was a study in this. Now, to be fair, there were some professors in some classes that are really cool. And I learned a lot. We read... Oh, who did... Who wrote Planet of the Slums? Davis. Mike Davis. We, we read Planet of the of Slums. We read some other stuff that was cool, but not as cool as that. Like, you know, Foucault is the old standby in college lefty thought. And just some other interesting stuff. But for the most part... The atmosphere of the college, the people I went to classes with, with a few exceptions, were this, basically. Let me tell you, I dropped out of that program for a reason. I mean, I was also failing, but you know.
1: But you were failing for a reason. Because the program was failing to describe reality. I was
0: failing failing for a reason because...
3: The conditions for study was, was not yet right.
0: The conditions for study were not yet ripe, and my mental health was failing. I mean, everything was wrong with the cloud program. There you go,
1: man. Now, <laughs> you go. now
0: you're thinking like a social Democrat. Right, it's <laughs> never my fault. It's other people's fault.
1: Which, yeah. if, you, if you've ever been in a small business situation...
0: 100%.
1: If anything they- goes wrong in the small business situation, you can see the main sort of proprietor being like, oh, how can I make this someone else's fault? even if it's someone I love and even if it'll harm them. I don't care. It has to be someone else's fault. It just has
3: to. You Uh, you make uh, it sound like that's not a thing in big business.
1: They often have some kind of boardroom or some shit where, like, you know, with a board of investors, this is actually why, like, you know, oh, the small is beautiful model doesn't scale, is that after a while, if you have a board of investors being like, Look, I care more about my money than your delusions.
0: Shut up. Maybe we should
1: get rid of you. You know?
3: Yeah, that eventually someone's
0: cool. like, fuck you. You lost me money. Get out of here. Like, eventually the buck stops.
4: Yeah, Steve Jobs. Get the hell out of Apple. Screw you. There well, are to the world Now, <laughs> now,
1: that's, that's a classic Stalin situation where without that kind of hegemonic, sociopathic bully, you get a kind of... Drift that leads to things like Apple Watches.
4: Do you? You don't have an Apple Watch, do you, Esri? No,
0: of course not. She one hundred percent has one. Oh my Explain. god! I'm sorry,
4: I'm not paying oh my attention. God. My god, they are so naff. Right? It is kind of staggering, like how the class stuff. Just in my own personal life, when I read this stuff and I think about it, it's staggering how determined by class we are on average. I remember when I was playing poker. For a living, I remember there was this this guy He was a dealer. So he was a, like a real working class guy and he was dealing the cards. And poker was basically just like a coterie of kind of rich guys who can't, don't know how to play and you'd basically take their money that's essentially right what, how you make your living and uh somebody got talking about politics or something and they asked me and uh, um, uh, what i was reading i think i was reading capital volume two when i was playing yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh they were saying oh are you Marx?" i said i'm a marxist yeah yeah and the dealer looked up and he was like it's like yeah he goes oh, i'm an anarchist and he's like he's like yeah right on brother kind of thing and then he was like oh these rich fuckers he says I, if you had my way, i just kill them all. And we're sitting at the table. And there was, like, pure silence. And I was, like, kind of, like, I was, like, saying to you, man, like, all oh, right, yeah, just trying to get them, like, I want these guys to stay here so I could take their money. I was making really good money. Like, there was, like, a few real dopes there. And, like, it was just taking money off these rich guys. Oh, man, I was, like, Come like a, a rich person would never say it. They would never say you know, like it was so, just. So he was, was, was literally saying,
3: "All I want to do is bam, 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 and take your money."
4: He was literally looking around, <laughs> looking around the table, and he was going like, "Fucking kill the rich," you know, like. And he was looking around. <laughs> oh man, it was too funny. I had to try and not laugh. It was fucking hilarious.
3: Uh, yeah. uh, Tom. Honestly, is there a single show... job in the world you haven't had. You've been a professional poker player you you've worked at a bank you're a fucking mathematician you're a some kind of uh, uh weird marxist cult leader on <laughs> running live shows w- what haven't you done i'll tell you what i did for a good don't while you I have here. a fucking degree in music as well like no i was a musician no, i was math. a math musician
4: as well I yeah, was so a, that, that's one more i was an organist in the cathedral holy
1: uh, fucking shit yeah this is renaissance renaissance man is what we <laughs> got here you didn't know that from Alpha 2 Omega listeners.
4: Just good enough and, to be above average on a lot of things. That's all.
3: <laughs> Next time on From Alpha 2 Omega, Tom admits to having been a doctor in a previous life.
4: Uh, <laughs> that would be good. Uh, Not I a great like, doctor, but a do doctor. you know what my favorite job was? Probably my favorite job ever, right, was emptying returned cartons of sour milk and it was no. very
3: that is would, a very specific job what
4: no. i had a big vat i'd have this big vat that would hold like a thousand gallons or something and i'd have stacks of cartons of milk that would come returns from the shops and they'd all be sour and i'd have to bash them on the side of this vat and so they'd empty into this thing and then you, i'd throw the empty carton into a big container that we'd set fire to lit every day and i'd sit there for hours emptying pints of sour milk and uh it was a very enjoyable job, just all day. Like back then, you had no music around. then just sitting on your own in a room, emptying sour milk. Sorry to God, it was fucking really enjoyable. <laughs> I smelled like good. shit, though, at the end of the day, I must say. You're so, saying it's like a zen thing? where you could just... just, a, just repetitive. <laughs> repetitive oh, yeah.
3: I love how all of these shows, at one point, has like a small chapter from Tom O'Brien's autobiography.
2: <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say, based on, on that story there, Tom, maybe Foulier was right about uh, using the individual inclinations of people to perform uh, socially necessary work that many others might not see as enjoyable. But there is something to be said yeah. about repetitive physical labor, where you can space out. No one's
4: bothering you. You're just on your own. You can do it like for a few hours. You know, like, if I had podcasts then, I swear to God, I would never have gone to fucking college, probably. I would have just been, fuck this, mm-hmm. I mentioned Sour Milk. You know, but, like, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for kind of, or even just washing the dishes in your house. I like washing my dishes, but I don't like ironing, so, you know, fuck that. Anyway, let's keep going. This is, like, totally
2: going uh, off the rails. Here. So, I, I, just, I just want to ask one thing uh, regarding this, this petty bourgeois consciousness stuff. Have, have any of you watched Extract? the, what was it, the Mike Judge movie? It was, like, the kind of, like, semi-sequel to Office Space. So it was, like, Office Space, which is about, like, the office proletariat. And then there's Extract, which is about the petty bourgeoisie. I feel like we should watch that sometime and see how it maps on on to what Marx is saying here. Because, like, he, he, like, has to deal with a strike, and it's... It's about wow. it's about the, this 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 extract make uh, a factory owner. It's like a very small factory. And he's a petty bourgeois, and it's about his marital life and dealing with the workers. and I don't know. should be Should be a good time. Wow, move over, guy that directed Parasite, Mike Judge,
1: classieur of our time.
2: Move. Oh, oh, oh! It, it is definitely not written from the perspective of the workers. <laughs> Let me tell you that.
1: I, no, I believe that. Have you seen Idiocracy? Yeah. yeah hey. that, that's quite funny. It's funny, but it's also very Malthusian.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's very liberal. It's like God, if only everyone watched the
1: Daily Show.
4: And it's genetically deterministic, I think, too, you know. But it, it is yeah. actually kind of funny. I like the best television program was kicking guys in the balls. And that made me fucking laugh. That's what jackass is. And fucking yeah. I like jackass. <laughs> you know, what the fuck is that say I,
0: I mean, don't know. That movie is flawed, but we, we have a WWE person in the office. He's talking to the Vince McMahon to be some kind of economic advisor. Like,
2: he was eh. going to be the chief. the chief of the panel for economic recovery was going to be Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon. If anyone knows how to
1: run a business into the ground, it's Vince McMahon. <laughs> like a childhood fixture growing up was driving by. The WWE office on the way to and from school. Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah. I, I, I've been in that building. I photocopied my ass in that building. <gasps> nice.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Esri trivia. You don't just get Tom trivia here. This is where you come to learn about everything except for what we're reading.
4: Well, that's it. But I'm, what, Yeah, let's keep going. But you don't realize, Esri, is that I'm going to cut your bit out. Okay. Let's keep oh, Let's keep going. It's the ne- next bit to this paragraph, and the petty bourgeois social democrats. Okay, I'll read this bit. Therefore, one must not imagine the Montagne, decimated and broken though it was and humiliated by the new parliamentary regulation as being particularly miserable. If June the 13th had removed its chiefs, it made room, on the other hand, for men of lesser calibre whom this new position flattered. If their impotence in Parliament could no longer be doubted, they were entitled now to confine their actions to outbursts of moral indignation and blustering declamation. If the party of order affected to see embodied in them as the last official representatives of the revolution, all the terrors of anarchy, they could in reality be all the more insipid and modest. They consoled themselves, however, for June 13th with the profound utterance, but if they dare to attack universal suffrage, well then, then we'll show them what we are made of. We shall see. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll show them who's boss.
4: Nouveau! <laughs> Nouveau! <laughs> no, I, I'm finding it very like it's very like we you know we map the t- the two most kind of dominant left stories of the English-speaking world of the last while has been, you know, Bernie and and Corbyn. But it's very hard to read this and not just map this goddamn stuff so directly onto, like, you know, being left with Keir Starmer or somebody who's, at the moment, he's so wishy-washy. They had some political representative on and they were talking about why the hospitals were all run down and they weren't prepared for this. And one of his ministers on it said, and who do you blame for that? And she's instead of saying it's the fucking Tories with their austerity, like everybody in the cold country knows, right? They said, "Oh well, we don't want to point fingers." Now.
0: Uh, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> respectable social democrats. Oh, respectable social democrats. Oh, oh. I
3: mean that
2: that Very is practical. that
3: is so British. It it could just as well be be in Sweden, like.
2: <laughs> and 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 so what's what's the equivalent? But if they get rid of the NHS, nouvelle Yeah.
4: As they uh, already last. privatized like fucking 50% of it off.
0: Yeah, you don't have now, to get rid of it. Just fuck it up.
4: And Labour helped. Yeah. Now the next paragraph here, we won't have to read it, only maybe the last sentence, is talking about the leaders, you know, these of the Social Democrats, through Roland and these guys, they basically had to leg it out of the country and they set up like a provisional government of like in, I don't know, where the hell, in, in, in Germany or somewhere, and Proudhon they, they started really bloviating and acting like they were really going to run back to France and wipe everybody out in a revolution. Let's let's read what Proudhon had to say about them Was Proudhon altogether wrong when he cried to these gentlemen you are nothing but windbags <laughs> You know How Can
1: we get the French here?
4: Yeah, okay des Rounette- Blagueurs Rounette- <laughs> blagger. you're a blagger that's actually that's interesting because in england they call they have the same word a blagger do you have that word mm. in, in america i wonder
1: um no I've we never, never heard of that word more likely is windbag
4: yeah i never i never thought of it like that yeah so it's french i never knew it was a french word like yeah so it's like somebody who's a pretender you know you're a blagger you could like if you can pass yourself off as one thing or another they blagger yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah he, here we call them bloggers. I think bloggers. there might be a different <laughs> linguistic route,
3: though. I hope they're not. I'm, I'm of... learning so many, like, archaic Swedish insults reading the Swedish translation. In, in, in the Swedish translation, it's skrevlare, And just like Knevelbor, which was the mustache, I have no fucking clue what, what it is.
4: I had a dictionary at home, and it was... An English dictionary from like it must be like hundred and twenty or thirty years ago, it must have been from the eighteen eighties like and uh, it was printed in Russia in the Soviet Union, so this tells you like I bought it new, but it, it was obviously like the nineteen ninety or something when I bought it, so they must have had an out of copyright English dictionary that they translated, and to put it into context, like they didn't have a number of the planets in it, they didn't have like i looked if you looked up car, it said a carriage for a horse you know this is what it, it had in it. it was a fucking it's a crazy dictionary it's called the burlington english dictionary i just made that fucking shit up but in it they had a, like i remember like reading in a in a in an old book i was reading some like i don't know when early 20th century book and it, somebody called somebody a, a, a fop and i looked at i said what's a fop so i got this dictionary down and i said a fop and i had after it fop is a coxcomb i was like what the fuck is a coxcomb? And then I went to Coxcomb and I said, A coxcomb is a fop. I was like, fuck
0: that. <laughs> Wow. Let's
4: keep going. I'm full of stories today. You give me a zero alcohol beer. That's flowing. Yeah, that's damn. Flowing.
3: Tom, it, it always starts flowing with you, man. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. The gift of the calf.
4: All right, let's go. Um, right, who wants to have a read?
1: On June 13th, the party of order had not only broken the Montaigne; it had affected the subordination of the constitution to the majority decisions of the National Assembly. And it understood the republic thus, that the bourgeoisie rules here in parliamentary forums, without, as in a monarchy, encountering any barrier, such as the veto power of the executive or the right to dissolve parliament. This was a parliamentary republic, as Thiers termed it. But whereas on June 13th, the bourgeoisie secured its omnipotence within the House of Parliament, did it not afflict Parliament itself as against the executive authority and the people with incurable weakness by expelling its most popular part? By surrendering numerous deputies without further ado on the demand of the courts, it abolished its own parliamentary immunity the humiliating regulations to which it subjected the Montaigne exalted the president of the republic in the same measure as it degraded the individual representatives of the people. By branding an insurrection for the protection of the constitutional charter and anarchic act aiming at the subversion of society, it precluded the possibility of its appealing to insurrection should the executive authority violate the constitution in relation to it. So the basic point being like, yeah, if you, if you play, oh, Black blocks is a cancer, and then a dictator takes over, you can't play anti-fascist resistance.
4: They had defeated their enemy, but they also inflicted wounds on themselves, which turned out to be essentially right. a period, you know, for the parliamentary order of the bourgeoisie, it was a pyrrhic victory.
1: Yeah, you got to pick one. Either you're, you know, against all, you know, direct action. And in this case, look, insurrectionary direct action was on the table. It was not totally beyond the political pale in this environment. So whether that's true for our times, whatever. But if you're going to be against all insurrectionary direct action, and then your precious constitution gets subverted by a would-be bonaparte, you just can't make recourse to that anymore.
2: This is not a quality thought, but I was just reminded of that wonderful meme that came out around the time of Occupy of Chris Hedges, where he was... You know, it's got all all the uh, all the the panels of him saying really edgy shit about like get out on the street, join the people, revolution is here. And then as soon as like the shop fronts start getting destroyed by Black Block, he's like, no, no, it's gone too far.
1: No, no, but that's when I was saying that you know the Black Block is a cancer. I was talking about an article that he wrote at the time. And yeah, <laughs> frankly, during Occupy, I did not understand why people were so cautious about criticizing the black block, because if I'm honest, where I saw it implemented, I mean, you know, maybe in Oakland, it had a place in on UC Davis's campus, which is like this idyllic, like cow town or whatever, seemed like one of those copy pasted tactics that seemed a little uh, LARPy and out of place. So I didn't think I understood it at the time. But I could tell that there was something that Chris Hedges, like, threw out the baby with the bathwater in all-out all out condemning, categorically, the Black Bloc tactic.
3: So I'm, I'm curious where you read in the Black Bloc stuff and the insurrection stuff here, because to, to my understanding, he's talking about what happens when you enable Parliament to essentially rewrite the Constitution and thus expelling... A, 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 I'm actually not it's, sure what he what he's referring to with the most popular the line, part.
2: It's the line here. By branding an insurrection for the protection of the constitutional charter, an anarchic act aiming at the subversion of society, it precluded the possibility of its appealing to insurrection should the executive authority violate the constitution in relation to it.
1: I guess I would relate this to the conversation we had about Kautsky and Luxembourg and Kautsky's theory that essentially... You don't really need like mass strikes so much if you have these parliamentary means that are going to secure socialist transition, just to make a rough analog. You have a kind of de- facto legalism that looks down on certain types of, you know, mass activity. Look, we're not going to need that stuff, okay? You know, we already have the method. What happens when the method gets subverted and it starts to build something? that even though you signed off on working within the state, what happens when the state starts going in the other direction, doesn't start marching towards socialism again? That's an echo of this conversation.
2: I think though that you're, you're closer to the mark when you mentioned Chris Hedges and the black box is a cancer idea because yeah. it, it's not just a matter of suggesting one strategy is superior to the other. It's it's a kind of expression of outrage against the violation of the constitutional social order, you know, the order of property and and that when you go and make those like really fiery claims that like this is a cancer. It's not just it's misguided. It's a cancer. Then you simply can't go, oh, but now we got to take guns to the streets and defend the Constitution, blah, blah, blah.
3: Yeah. Okay. So so now now I'm getting you because th- that point Kyle was what I was reading into this as well. That similar to the point that he made uh, earlier on in I believe chapter two when he was like, "Well, you taught the army how to govern. So what the fuck did you expect?" And here he was like, "Okay, if you brand people who are taking to the streets to protect the constitution, you know, if you if you're calling them dangerous anarchists, then that's gonna come around and bite you in the ass." If you need an insurgency yourself uh, later on. Yeah, but, but what was the most popular part? I'm, I'm not exactly sure what exactly he's referring to.
4: The mountain. He's, t- he's talking about the mountain.
2: Right, 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 yeah. right. Okay. When, when Trier and company kicked the mountain out, they surrendered the most popular part of parliament.
1: Yeah, thus endangering parliament right. as an institution.
4: Let's move it on. Emmanuel, how do you feel about reading these couple of paragraphs?
3: Uh, Sure. June 13th had still another meaning. The Montagne had wanted to force the impeachment of Bonaparte. Its defeat was therefore a direct victory for Bonaparte, his personal triumph over his democratic enemies. The party of order gained the victory. Bonaparte had only to cash in on it. He did so. On June 14th, a proclamation could be read on the walls of Paris in which the president, reluctantly against his will, compelled, as it were, by the sheer force of events, comes forth from his cloistered seclusion and, posing as misunderstood virtue, complains of the calumnies of his opponents, and, while he seems to identify his person with the cause of order, rather identifies the cause of order with his person. Moreover, the National Assembly had, it is true, subsequently approved the expedition against Rome, but Bonaparte had taken the initiative in the matter. After having reinstalled the high priest Samuel in the Vatican, he could hope to enter the Tuileries as King David. He had won the priests over to his side. The revolt of June 13th was confined, as we have seen, to a peaceful street procession. No war laurels were therefore to be won against it. Nevertheless, at a time as poor as this, in heroes and events, the party of order transformed this bloodless battle into a second Austerlitz. Platform and press praised the army, As the power of order, in contrast to the popular masses representing the impotence of anarchy, and extolled Chargonnier as the bulwark of society, a deception in which he himself finally came to believe. Surreptitiously, however, the corps that seemed doubtful were transferred from Paris. The regiments which had shown the most democratic sentiments in the elections were banished from France to Algiers. The turbulent spirits among the troops were relegated to penal detachments. And finally, the isolation of the press from the barracks and of the barracks from bourgeois society was systematically carried out.
4: And must be said, that's been kind of carried out in all armies in any bourgeois state. It's hard to imagine that there is any political activity in a thing like the British Army. There's like absolute zero. And I'd say if you did do it in the British Army, they would essentially either have you killed during training, which they which they do on a surprising r- surprising regularity, run people to death. Yeah. Every year For there's real? like a few people have been run to death in training exercises. Fuck. Um,
3: Are you serious? Yeah. Ted. Jesus. Wow.
4: Yeah. So like, I don't know if that's a political one, but you could imagine that's what they would actually do. Or they bully, they have incredible bullying. They have uh, cases of, People like being in fear of our life that are going to get shot by people in their own regiments. You know, France was the first to have a probably a proper modern Republican revolutions. And they quickly figured out what to do with the goddamn armed forces and not let them be democratic. It did not take them
2: very long, did it? Well, it took them quite a while, honestly. This is a this is this is quite a while after things kicked off. But this is where they did figure it out. And we're able to actually do it because like the national guard was the decisive revolutionary force in the previous revolutions of the 19th century. So like, you know, it, it, it it took a while to really kill that citizen militant revolutionary kind of character.
0: Yeah. I was going to say like listening to the Mike Duncan revolutions podcast, like, Time and time again, especially in like France and like other European revolutions, it's the National Guard. And I kept thinking to myself, like, why do they just keep, why do these old regimes just keep being like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You can have a National Guard do these things. You know, like, why does that keep happening? And then when I got to 1848 and they finally kind of like depoliticized it and dismantled it, I was like, okay, they, they finally figured it out. And I wasn't happy about it, obviously, but I was just surprised.
4: I think it's not so much a case of figuring it out. I think it's also a case of being able to actually implement it. Yeah, you know, because being, of
2: all the fuck-ups that happen here. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And and wow. also the thing is like that the not if you are the bourgeoisie, you're the big bourgeoisie. This is one thing I meant to say about the in the end the last paragraph, like the logic of liberal reforms, you know, of like the enlightenment is socialism or communism really when you get down to it. You know, and to get the the actual revolution through, to complete the bourgeois revolution, you still need that revolutionary part of the population. You know, the, I mean, the national guard—it's still a force that had function, but like by this time, it no longer had that function for them, and so they they wanted to get rid of it, and also they were able to at that same point. And I think yeah, that's
2: it's, the, it's... that's the point. It's the point where you have the split between the political revolution and the social revolution. And the adherents of the political revolution don't have any use for an independent armed National Guard. Precisely. Having some
1: FRICOR around is very useful sometimes if you,
2: if you want to make sure revolutions
1: don't happen. It's always good to have a side of fry Corps.
4: I thought it was quite interesting here as well where he talks about how they put, they extoled Changarnier, the general, who led the action against the National Guard and the Social Democrats, and he, how he became to believe in his own like mm-hmm. great action and how he was a saviour of society and all this. Yeah,
2: the, the second Austerlitz is like massacring unarmed people on the streets. It's just amazing. that That is such a good pull from uh, the first Bonaparte to the second.
1: When I read this kind of stuff, i am reminded of the people that i know in my life that have been attracted to like militia stuff in the united states in particular some people i knew that became ex-socialists actually that became sort of sympathetic to the 3%ers it's just uh there's this whole like reactionary drift where you go from seeing yourself as the defender of society to the defender of society from these parasitic bits that will turn it in on
2: itself it's going to be interesting when we get to marx talking about the lumpen proletariat how much that logic actually is expressed in marx as well
1: this is something we've been getting into on swamp side we recently read baudrillard and i promise this is relevant one of the things that baudrillard gets on politically one of the only things he has to say politically is the way that the socialist tradition uses the social, the kind of abstraction of society in a way that becomes defensive, conservative, reactionary. Yeah, I see that at work here. And I definitely know like Marxists or post-Marxists that drift in that direction very easily.
4: Okay, Sophie, how do you feel about a big sassy read?
0: I could do a big sassy read. Finally, on June 13th, its power was broken and not only by partial disbandment, which from this time on was periodically repeated all over France until mere fragments of it were left behind. The demonstration of June 13th was, above all, a demonstration of the Democratic National Guards. They had not, to be sure, worn their arms, but had worn their uniforms against the army. Precisely in this uniform, however, lay the talisman. The army convinced itself that this uniform was a piece of woolen cloth like any other. The spell was broken. In the June days of 1848, bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie had united as the National Guard with the army against the proletariat. On June thirteenth, 1849, the bourgeoisie let the petty bourgeois national guard be dispersed by the army on december 2nd 1851 the national guard of the bourgeoisie itself had vanished and bonaparte merely registered this fact when he subsequently signed the decree for its disbandment thus the bourgeoisie had itself smashed its last weapon against the army the moment the petty bourgeoisie no longer stood behind it as a vassal but before it as a rebel It had to smash it as, in general, it was bound to destroy all its means of defense against absolutism with its own hand as soon as it had itself become absolute. So for the bourgeois, the
4: big rich bankers and all these industrialists, now that the petty bourgeois were standing up to them, they went, all right, lads, good luck now. Let's be having you. Get your jacket there, lads. Out you go. No more drink, boys. It's closing time. They fucked them off, uh, but then all of a sudden they were left with nobody with their back yeah. and they were facing the army alone. And the army was going to eventually turn on them when they said, why do we need these guys Guys to be doing anything? We could do it all for ourselves, boys. Let's take a cut. Yeah.
1: Why do we need all these Bernie bros anyway? We could win an election without them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, and 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 uh, I, I just wanted to to Sorry. shout out shout out that last uh, sentence as a uh, true Marxism. Uh, you know, that's that's some real Marx writing right there. It's like so so incred- incredibly incredibly uh, self referential and reflexive that the sentence is tied up in knots. It's something you'd find in Capital. It's wonderful
4: yeah i I think in the comment of the the last live stream erica when i said there was one sentence in particular that was like 200 words long erica went and did the hard work and left it as a comment i think it was 348 words erica in the chat you'll remember but like max can really put them together for such a good writer it's kind of incredible okay i think we're down to the last paragraph of this chapter Who wants to read it? Kyle, I think we're all the way back to yourself. Yeah. All right. Bring the bomb
2: Kyle. Meanwhile, the party of order celebrated the reconquest of a power that seemed lost in 1848, only to be found again, freed from its restraints in 1849, celebrated by means of invectives against the Republic and the Constitution, of curses on all future, present and past revolutions, including that which its own leaders had made, and in laws by which the press was muzzled, association destroyed, and the state of siege regulated as an organic institution. The National Assembly then adjourned from the middle of August to the middle of October after having appointed a permanent commission for the period of its absence. During this recess, the legitimists intrigued with M, the Orleanists with Clermont, Bonaparte by means of princely tours and the departmental councils in deliberations on a revision of the Constitution. Incidents which regularly recur in the periodic recesses of the National Assembly, and which I propose to discuss only when they become events. Here it may merely be remarked, in addition, that it was impolitic for the National Assembly to disappear from the stage for considerable intervals, and leave only a single, albeit a sorry figure, to be seen at the head of the Republic that of Louis Bonaparte. Well, to the scandal of the public, the party of order fell asunder into its royalist component parts and followed its conflicting desires for restoration. As often as the confused noise of Parliament grew silent during these recesses and its body dissolved into the nation, it became unmistakably clear that only one thing was still lacking to complete the true form of this Republic to make the former's recess permanent and replace the latter's inscription, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, with the unambiguous words, Infantry, Cavalry, Artillery. I'm just going to point out that in
3: the Swedish translation, the first sentence, Meanwhile, the party of order, it does not actually say the party of order. Instead, it can be read two ways. It can be read as the party of order, they can also be read as the police.
1: I like that. Kyle, in yes. French, could, how would you say infantry, cavalry, artillery? Oh my God. That's a good
2: question. I'll, I'll have to get back to you. Uh, I'll,
4: I'll say it's infantry, cavalry, artillery.
2: I mean, I think that might <laughs> oh, be probably, I
4: think I, I you right.
2: cavalry, artillery. Yeah, that's right. There you go. You got the pronunciation. <laughs>
4: I really love that last line. He really finishes every every chapter with a real zinger. What does this say? This says something to us about the difference between executive power and parliamentary power. It's one thing that kind of we look to the countries that have executive presidential power, like America, France. The parliament is entirely secondary. You know, who the hell gives a damn about what happens in America, in the House of Representatives, not much. It's mm. it's like it's the executive or it's not. Like in England, no, one, mm. in Ireland, say for example, it's the opposite. We have a a totem presidential role, and nobody actually gives a goddamn about it. It's got no function. It's all about Parliament. So it says something interesting about you know, but how these forms kind of structures delineate political action in these different systems i
2: I will say though, from a Canadian perspective looking in on the u s, Americans give a lot more of a shit about their senators than Canadians give about you know backbencher or even cabinet MPs. It's not so total that the executive is mm-hmm. not so total in America, but in France, you're absolutely right, Tom. There's a lot of gridlock in Congress. Although people that are politically engaged
1: may care a bit about their senator, like, it's not like a general topic of conversation. More often you get in a big city, the mayor will become a cultural figure or sometimes the governor. So I think there's very much an executive bias in American institutions. And that's something that long-term observers of the United States have noticed that you have a inverse, you have an inverse relationship between the expansion of the franchise and the power of the legislature, essentially. So the more that representation becomes possible for a greater number of people, the weaker the institution that most, you know, reflects their will or even potentially could becomes.
3: Like, again, his observations in, I believe it was chapter one, about the, the contradiction between the legislative and the executive branch leading to precisely this problem of you and whose army is it, still spot on. And what you talked about, Kyle, with regards to people not giving a shit about their MPs, like I've, I'm again reminded of just how incredibly different the Germanic system and uh, especially as as implemented in the nordics is from the french uh, french american system uh, because like reading this it's just you know even if you read in in school or whatever that the us political system is based off of french republicanism like reading this really hammers that home right you you have you have the president who is the one that actually matters and then you have the parliament and the senate and the congress Whatever the fuck they do, who pass all the laws, but ha- has no executive branch to back them up, right? and like so so coming at this from a Swedish perspective is really interesting because the thought of dividing that is so alien to us, right? What we don't really have a legislative and executive branch in that way. What we have are autonomous authorities. so this this is actually something that that like I hate to bring coronavirus into this. Like I, <laughs> I feel this is like a cultural thing that has become more apparent to me as I watch foreign media report on the Swedish model of battling Corona as it were, because uh, newspapers and, and the media keep asking the question, like, why isn't the Swedish government doing more or uh, uh, enforcing harder restrictions or going to lockdown, etc.? The, the government isn't doing anything. The government is not setting any policy. The government does not have like there's there's no separation between a legislative and executive branch. What we have are autonomous authorities, you manned have by experts.
4: Yeah, no, you have ministerial yes. ministries.
3: But uh, exactly, uh, yeah, we we have a team of of non politically affiliated medical and basically epidemiologists. and it's amazing to me how different politics are to systems where we have more of a much more of a technocratic approach like just just let the experts handle it and keep politicians out of the way and let people self-regulate rather than
2: the thing is in America those those bodies existed but the executive power just ran roughshod over them well, of course and, they, of course they did. <laughs> you know, I just, I just mean to say there was a period in American history where they set up those bodies. <laughs> it's just kind of gone to a point where the executives, like, yeah, I don't give a shit about that.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which goes back to Marcus's point, right? That if you have this, this clear division, it leads to to this contradiction that can't possibly work.
4: <laughs> it, it's interesting. Like we look at. Say the two major countries in the world, say, of like capitalist countries that have actually got a presidential system are really America and France. The two early adopters of bourgeois, like the modern adopters of early adopters of bourgeois and all the other European countries after seeing what happened with the executive in France and a lot of the other colonies and everything around the place they all implemented parliamentary democracies instead of executive authorities for fear of, of the, the Bonaparte. Is that, is that true? Do people think?
0: I don't know if that was like, I I, I don't know if I could say it's explicitly like every other country that had that, that implemented a democracy was like, Oh, we need to do parliamentary because, you know, we're afraid of what happened in in France and
4: Sophie, there's no presidential system in Europe. There's no presidential system in Europe. I'm
0: not, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. What I'm saying Thanks is I don't know. Totally if was, presidential system.
2: I, I just want to say one thing, which is that the French case, you kind of have it backwards because the French case was a reaction to French political history. They were looking at the previous republic and the political divisions of parliament and implementing an extremely strong executive power so as to tie together France, because they believed that France could not govern itself in a parliamentary form. So this is the, the, so the experience of the first revolution
4: and the draft. No, it, of- was,
2: it was the experience of the Republic prior to the Second World War, where they couldn't get their shit together and the Germans just kicked their ass. And then, you know, de Gaulle was like, well, enough of that. I'm going to set up a republic that is highly presidential so that we actually have a strong country.
4: But was that, was it a lot of it from the French? Like the French had like the biggest army in Europe at the time and they had the worst strategy. The Germans just kicked their ass. Like you could put but it down-
2: a lot, a lot of it was also the divisions between the left and the right and the divisions between the socialists and the communists in, in government in France, which weakened the French considerably in the run-up to the war. The strategic blunders were definitely a part of it. But like the fact that like Vichy France happened in the way it did was also a result of the dividedness of France.
4: Okay, fair enough. I take that on board. Yeah, fair enough. That's a bit of history I wasn't so aware of. But it is kind of interesting though that the model of the strong executive presidential thing has gone with the high bike in nearly all capitalist countries.
2: Yeah, you get it in like, Singapore, China. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, basically, the only
3: country where it seems it'll... to work is Finland because those bastards make fucking everything work. They make schools work perfectly. Like they they make social democracy work. They, yeah. They've had social hmm. democracy for as long as we have, and they still haven't <laughs> fucked it up. I,
4: like, one... I, I I
3: don't know what's 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 with the Finns, but like they somehow they just managed to do the impossible i guess
4: we'll have to check their rate of profit we'll have to go and look up their finnish rate of profit that could be I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking up their
3: their lgbt laws let's say
4: in in finland you get you get paid to go to college
3: you know that you america yeah do like that. yeah you're, hey. you're you get a you get a student salary
1: yeah hey, but we, trans people can only change legal gender after sterilization so
3: not in finland, finland. i just looked it up Are you sure after sterilization
4: what do, what
1: yeah, dog? yeah, yeah. You got to be sterilized first. We can't have any ambiguity. Make sure all your your, That's... your bits don't work.
2: <laughs> Good old uh, social democratic eugenics. Uh, yeah.
1: classic, classic social democratic eugenics.
3: Yeah, I mean, we, we abolished that years ago. I mean, that hasn't been on Swedish books since seven years. <laughs> seven years. I mean, <laughs> Don't.
1: I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, it was abolished
3: yeah. in 2013, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it was. It was recent, but I'm just saying Sweden's got a one up on on Finland there. I'm just saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. In your defense, like people didn't start like actually giving a fuck about trans people until about seven years ago. So. Yeah, fair. like everywhere has
1: it been that long?
0: <laughs> if it, it feels like it's been shorter, doesn't it?
4: It might be. What do people? think of the entire chapter then we've gone through the fall of the social democrats, the petty bourgeois social democrats any uh, overarching thoughts now that we've finished
0: Uh, something I thought earlier didn't get a chance to talk about is like so in this we see like the consolidation of the executive and the consolidation around like a would-be autocrat and Bonaparte, you get the smashing of the petite bourgeois more or less now does that mean that When it comes to, like, kind of uh, enlightened despotism, which I think has become the predominant model of dictatorships in the 21st century, if some kind of, like, Bonapartist or pseudo-Bonapartist kind of, like, rerunning the Constitution so the same guy can be president or prime minister forever, is one of the key things, like, giving the petite bourgeois a political voice versus not? Is that, like, a difference between, like, a liberal modern society versus, like, an illiberal modern society? Or is there something more to it?
1: Interesting. I mean, yeah. We're, I'd we're that's pretty, in that model, pretty apt. Yeah. yeah. Instead of just the one ruling faction getting a say, you know, you get the... You kind of get your incoherent Green Party that could get it together, maybe.
3: I, I think of this like the, the modern Bonapartists being like, America and the troops, and like the the 3%ers, etc. Whereas I, I, I see the petite Bourgeoisie being... Bit more like not necessarily even Silicon Valley types, but well, huh?
0: Well, what I was getting
3: at—not
0: like different factions or like different like politically or socially motivated actors, like the three percenters or et cetera, but rather governments, right? Like comparing the U.S. and like you know majority of Europe and well, oh, I mean sure. a lot of the world mm-hmm. now actually compared to like maybe Russia or I'm just trying to think of other examples of like kind of illiberal liberal enlightened despotism, Putin is the first person that comes to mind and when I'm talking about this. like
2: yeah, I, I think that the thesis you're putting to forward, Sophie is one that was basically official policy in America under the influence of modernization theory. the The idea was that you build a, a middle class aka the petit bourgeoisie, and that would build democracy. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking about, yeah. So if you're thinking about like liberal presidential republics like France, then the pet, pet, petit bourgeoisie is obviously on it smashed, and there is still some liberalism there. But if you're thinking about things like Putin, I think you probably are more or less right. The only thing I'm wondering about is the case of Singapore, where when I talk to petit bourgeois people in Singapore. I think it was very much like the Second Empire in the sense that they might grouse about the executive power and they they kind of looked upon it as an alien thing in the sense that like court intrigue was really what decided what happened and not what the Petit Bourgeoisie was doing. But they were also kind of bought into it like they were like, no, yeah, but they managed things pretty well. It very much reminds me of the Second Empire after Louis Napoleon wins. And you have Ausman takes over rebuilding Paris under a very technocratic program. That, that That's kind of what it reminds me of.
0: That makes sense. I mean, I I, mean, I guess what I mean is like there, there, there exists a class of petite bourgeois, but they're not given a really big say in politics if they're given a say at all. It's kind of what I'm using to like differentiate between like a liberal bourgeois government versus an illiberal bourgeois government.
4: But if you if you look at the origins so, of of say Putin in Russia, I would go kind of slightly against what you said, Kyle. That their policy wasn't to create a class of petty bourgeois; it was to create a like the American policy was to create an actual class of bourgeois. Yeah, but, yeah, bur- but that
2: that that was yeah. after that was after the eclipse of modernization theory. Modernization theory was an attempt to respond to Marxist. Uh, sort of Soviet political programs in the in the in the, the global uh, south in the third world. I mean, and it by the time that the Soviet Union fell, those people were already out. What are we talking about in terms of
3: decades here?
2: Roughly the fifties until the eighties. It's yeah post war compromise okay. in its foreign policy form, uh, which was literally right. a response to Marx. It was written as a response yes. to Marx. Yeah.
3: Okay, so the sort of uh, Western consensus after World War II was, at least in part, built on Beveridge, right? Who, I guess, you could say, is kind of the modern founder of the modern founder of of, of social democracy. And what you mentioned about modernization theory was remarkably close to what I know as Beveridge's uh, full employment in a free society. Where you you essentially, um, we can't have any more world wars. Why were there so many world wars? Well, because of inequality within nations and between nations. And so we can't have trade wars anymore. And we can't do like beggar thy neighbor, aggressive dumping the prices on, on grain or oil in order to screw over your neighbor, essentially, or monopolize stuff. So what we have to do is tax the fuck out of the rich give it to the poor, have a lot of public investments, print money if we have to, in order to keep everyone employed uh, at full employment, just make sure that we have a a huge middle class and essentially have a normal distribution of income and wealth instead of a Pareto distribution.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's more or less where modernization theory was aiming. But Uh you have to remember, it was a program for the third world. So it was okay. much more concerned right. with the agrarian question and land reform sure. and what to do okay. with the peasants and how to create a proletariat and how to create a middle class, how to create a petty bourgeoisie. It wasn't oriented towards the first world. It was oriented towards the third world. There's a book on this called Mandarins of the Future that is is really oh. good. I, I would recommend reading that one.
3: On a different note, we should really read uh, *Full Employment in a Free Society* because uh, I can't wait to have have cups with you again, Tom, about MMT. Um, <laughs> oh God. Uh, <laughs> God. <laughs>
4: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. The artwork for the show was created by the Korean artist and author of the 2019 Marx Engels illustration book. You can check out links to his work and Twitter account in the show notes. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega this show is a member of the emancipation network a marxist podcast research collective make sure to check out our network sister podcasts general intellect unit jumpsuit utopia mortal science and swampside chats